Well, this week is our second week in our journey through Lent, the 40 days that we're walking along with Jesus towards the cross, towards the, the tomb, and ultimately towards Easter and, and the risen Savior, right? And throughout these weeks, as we head towards Easter, we are listening in on various conversations that Jesus had with people all along the journey of his ministry. And there's plenty, there's plenty of conversations, plenty of words from Jesus for us to listen to. But as you probably know already from your own lives, sometimes the most powerful messages don't come through our words. Sometimes the most powerful messages are communicated only through our actions. They don't need words. Let me give you some examples. For you teenagers here, for those times, or you who used to be teenagers, those times when you broke curfew, you knew you were late, you knew you were in trouble, and you tried to sneak into the house late at night, just thinking maybe mom and dad both went to sleep and they wouldn't notice. That parent who was the lucky one who got to wait up for you didn't need to speak any words, did he or she? You knew exactly. Oh, the words came, but they didn't need to. You knew what they were thinking, what they were feeling, what they were going to say. Actions speak louder than words, right? When you love somebody dearly, you don't need to ask them if they're angry with you. You know it by the crossed arms, the icy stare, the silence. You don't need words. You know they're angry, right? In the midst of deep sorrow and grief, sometimes the most effective way to share that grief, to say I love you, to give comfort, is not with words you speak. It's with the hug that you give. It's with the tears that you share. The joys you experience in life. You don't need words. You can tell when somebody's joyful. They're screaming. They're shouting. They're dancing. Their hands are waving, right? Your actions speak louder than words. They speak your loves, your values, your desires, your emotions. You can just see it. Well, this morning, we're going to share a conversation that Jesus had where he spoke very, very few words, but his message came so, through so clearly in his actions. Right, so turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is page 802 in the Bibles that you have in front of you. Matthew 21. We're going to pick it up in the middle of this chapter. At the beginning of this chapter, we get to see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Remember that? The high point of his, his popularity with the people. He's walking into Jerusalem, and they're shouting, they're singing, they're waving branches, they're laying laying coats on the ground before him, right? And they adore him. They love him. This is probably the, the moment that Jesus can capture the best, right? What he says next is going to have all kinds of power and influence because people are loving him. They're listening to him. So what does he do? What is his message? What does he want to say to them? Well, pick up the story at verse 12. It says that Jesus then entered the temple courts... And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were in 
indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Jesus does speak some words in these, this passage, but very few of them, right? He, he, does, he does shout scripture truth to the people who have chosen to make their living in the temple courts by price gouging the pilgrims who were coming and needed to buy an animal for sacrifice. They'd raise the prices. They'd make their living taking advantage of people who just came to worship. He shouts scripture at them. And when, and when the chief priests and teachers of the law are angry with him, for what he's done, he speaks scripture back to them. But it's not so much his words that stand out in this passage, is it? It's his actions that jump out at us. We see Jesus step into this temple courtyard and he turns the place upside down, literally. Right? He he overturns whole tables that are, that are filled with money. And he walks over to the, to, to the stalls of those selling doves and he kicks them over on their side. And it says that, that he, he chases all of these men right out of the temple. He, he's angry. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but it, he doesn't have to, does he? You can see it. Jesus is angry. And that's not usually a picture that we we readily see when we try and imagine Jesus, is it? When we try and imagine and picture Jesus, we see him as, as humble and gentle and patient and peaceful and quiet, right? He's kind. We picture him that way because that's the way he usually is. But then we get this picture of an angry Jesus. And it seems just so incongruent to the Jesus we know and love. Our minds don't easily combine Jesus, the Son of God, with this angry person. It just doesn't seem to fit because, because we're taught, and often rightly, that anger is wrong. After all, anger is one of those seven deadly sins. And, and really, if you're going to rank those seven, it's up near the top, right? We, we don't... We don't rank things like sloth and greed and gluttony that we enjoy higher than anger. Anger is much worse than all of those things, right? And the Bible itself clearly warns us about anger. James, he writes this. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires, right? And before James wrote that, Jesus himself, Jesus took the, the command, you shall not murder, and he expanded it, and he said, it expanded to include anger, didn't he? These are his words, Jesus. He said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. That's much broader. Anybody who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus' words seem to give this blanket, blanket warning about anger. And yet here we see him 
in the temple courtyard, tossing tables around, chasing people right out of the building. How are we supposed to justify these incongruent things? His actions and his words. Well, I think this morning we need to better understand what anger is and what anger is not. See, this, this deadly kind of anger, the seven deadly sins kind of anger, is defined like this. It's defined as an emotion that's aroused when you suffer a real or perceived injury and then take that take action to punish the offender. Okay, we're going to work with that definition. You might want to ponder that more throughout the week. Emotion that's aroused, you suffer a real or perceived injury, and you take action then to punish the offender. Right? It's, it's that emotion that immediately rises up when you're hurt by somebody. That fight or flight is that fight emotion, that anger, right? So when somebody hits you, you immediately are ready to hit them back. When somebody betrays you and hurts you, your mind already thinks of all the ways you can betray them back and you can hurt them back. When you get offended, when you get hurt, you can offend and you can hurt right back. And sometimes, sometimes the injury isn't even real. Sometimes, like the definition says, it's just a perceived injury. Like this one, like you're driving down the highway and, and you're just minding your own business and, and, and something happens. Maybe you get caught behind a really, really slow driver and you're boxed in and there you are for like five miles. You can't get out. Or maybe you see somebody who, who's in your rear view mirror who's about to fly past you at 120 miles an hour. Or, or maybe somebody's just driving a little too close to you. What happens to you? You begin to get anxious. You begin to get angry. Your blood begins to boil. Pretty soon you are furious at this slow driver or fast driver or crazy driver. And, and you want to you punish them. What can you do? You're in a car. So you wait for them to go past or when you're going to go past them and you shake an angry fist or you wave a specific finger or something like that. They did nothing to you, really. There's no injury. And yet, oh, there's that anger, right? And you want to hurt them back. You and I can recognize that kind of anger in our lives. Here's how you recognize that it's that deadly sin kind of anger. Three things. That kind of anger is a passionate againstness. It's against. It turns us towards the negative. Right? It, it directs us down a path of continued hurt and destruction instead of trying to find some kind of healing for that injury or some kind of peace in the midst of that anxiety. Right? So if you've been injured, if you've been hurt, anger doesn't send us to go find healing. No, it doesn't move us to, to repair our injury. Instead, it drives us towards inflicting more hurt, which will break us apart even more. Right? Anger is this againstness. It keeps us focused on what we are against, never what we are for. Secondly, this againstness is always directed towards somebody else. It's always directed towards others. Maybe we're the ones who brought the injury on. Maybe we brought brokenness into our own relationship. Maybe we brought the hurt onto ourselves. But you know what? We're always good at finding somebody else to blame, aren't we? We're always good at being angry at somebody else. And it's not that hard to find somebody. So when we get suspended for, from school, when we get kicked off of the team because of something we did, we're angry at the principal for doing the, the discipline. 
When we foul out of the big game, it's not our fault that we fouled. It's the referee's fault, and we're angry at the referee. That's their fault. When our marriage is having difficulties, when that relationship is hard, and it's so easy to point out what my spouse is doing wrong. Our relationship with your kids, angry at your kid. When the bills can't be paid and, and somebody needs to be blamed for spending too much money, it's never me. It's always somebody else. Our anger searches for any target other than ourselves. It's directed at somebody else. When it, when it finds that target, it zeroes in and it destroys, right? There's an energy, there's a power in our anger. Anger stomps and storms and swings and throws and yells. And that anger, that energy becomes destructive. It destroys. Anger breaks bones and breaks furnitures. It puts holes in a wall. It breaks trust and it breaks confidence. It breaks friendships and it breaks family relationships. As we stoke this anger of fire inside of us, this fire of anger, we become dangerous people. You can see the results throughout Scripture. Cain gets angry at his brother Abel and he kills him. Moses is angry with the people of Israel and he, he swings out of anger and he hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock as God asked him to do. King Saul is angry at David's popularity and three times he grabs a spear hoping to pin David to the wall. Again and again, it's anger that unleashes this destructive force. And it's not unfamiliar to you. It's not unfamiliar to me. It's certainly not unfamiliar in our current culture, is it? We are getting better and better at getting angry at each other, at being outraged, right? Our fuses have become so short that we often bring our anger into places that it's never supposed to be, like our kids' soccer games and our kids' basketball games. We bring it out on the golf course with us. The highways and the parking lots as we drive our cars are places that know exactly how to stoke our anger. Any political discussion is sure to make you furious nowadays, right? We get angry. We're familiar with it. Each one of us probably here could tell a sad story of life. Because some of us here have let our anger destroy a relationship with a friend or a neighbor or a family member. Some of us have let anger destroy our relationship with a whole race of people. Some of us have let our anger burn against an institution like, like the church or a school or the government. And it's a seething inside of us, breaking our relationships. This anger is sin. It's deadly to us. It's deadly to the people around us. And now here in Matthew 21, we see Jesus being angry. How are we supposed to understand that? Because his words warn us not to become angry. And he sure looked angry here. I don't think he said excuse me as he turned the tables over. So did Jesus kind of blow it here? Did he lose his temper? Did, did, in a moment of weakness, did he just forget how he was supposed to behave? No. We know that Jesus was perfect. We know that he was sinless. So, so what's the difference? Well, Jesus' actions here, 
give us a very powerful image of what he has come to do. Right? The tables and the benches turned upside down in the courtyard. When you picture that in your mind and you see that mess, they give us a visual image of Jesus' ministry that came to turn all of our expectations, to turn all of our cultural brokenness upside down. Right? And he even turns our understanding and our behavior of anger upside down. Everyone expected Jesus to play by the rules of the day. Right? The people seeing him come into Jerusalem thought they knew exactly what he was going to do when he went to the temple. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, expected him to toe the line, to, to play the religious game that they had set up. And instead, Jesus comes and turns everything upside down. And we need to notice, as he does that, how his anger here is radically different from the anger that we just talked about and that we so often live out. Our anger, remember, is so often this passionate againstness, the things that we hate, we, what we're against. Jesus was motivated by a passionate forness. Jesus was passionately for the things of God. Jesus' anger was an appropriate response to injustice against God the Father. Right? In this instance, Jesus is so passionately for godly worship. That's what the temple was all about, right? Coming and meeting with God and worshiping him there. He was so for godly worship that when he saw these people in the courtyard inhibiting godly worship, stopping good worship, taking advantage of godly worship for their own financial gain, he, he was angry. He needed to do something about that in order to bring it back to the way God designed it to be. He was passionately for good worship. Another instance, I think one of the only other instances in Scripture where we hear that Jesus was angry. Remember when, when, he, was, when he had little children gathered around him and the disciples said to the parents, Hey, keep your kids away. Don't, don't, don't bother Jesus. And it says that Jesus was angry with his disciples. Because he was passionately for children. He was passionately for community. For people being allowed to come into the presence of God. Into the presence of Jesus himself. And he said, let the children come. He was passionately for those relationships. Jesus was passionately for justice. And yet, isn't it interesting the moment when the greatest injustice in history happened, the moment when the Roman soldiers laid him on that beam and nailed him to the cross and hung him to die when he was completely innocent. Jesus is silent. Doesn't say a word. Let's see injustice happen. Why? Because Jesus is passionately for the things of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God. And anything that stands in the way of that is what's going to make him angry. Okay, and, and this, this anger he feels when, when faced with injustice, faced with people who are standing against the purposes and the plans of God, this anger, this energy is spent not on himself like we so often do, right? Right? It's spent on behalf of others. 
his energy he gives as a gift to the people who are being, who are being harmed by this injustice. His energy is used to bring about the goodness of God into other people's lives. His energy here is used to bring the kingdom of God into this world. And instead of being destructive, his energy is creative. We get to see what he creates right here. Right? We, we focus so often on the tables flying and the money scattering and the people running out. We don't pay attention to the second picture we get of the temple courtyard. We get to see the temple courtyard transformed from a place of abusive business into a place of healing and wholeness and worship. Don't miss the picture of Jesus there in that courtyard. See the blind receiving sight again. See the lame making their way somehow into that courtyard, limping or carried, broken, and walking out, healed and whole. Make sure you, you see the children, again, the children who are in the courtyard gathered all around Jesus, and they're praising, they're worshiping the way the courtyard was supposed to be. They're singing Hosanna to the Son of David. We get to see relationships with God being built in that place. We get to see this corner of God's creation redeemed and restored back to the shalom that God intended for that place. Jesus turns our understanding of this emotion that we call anger and how we are to live it out upside down, doesn't he? Anger that is passionately for the things of God, that is spent on behalf of others, and that is productive and creative in God's redeeming and restoring plan, that's not sin. That is not sin. That is righteous indignation. Live with this definition. Righteous indignation, the emotion that's aroused when you see an injustice, and then you take action to remedy it. You see the injustice, you take action to remedy it. And those emotions, those actions are godly and holy and good. I find it so sad in this story that it's the religious leaders, it's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, it's preachers like me who got it so wrong. They still do. Right? So they step into this restored temple courtyard where, where the, the blind are getting their sight and the lame are walking, the children are praising and worshiping, and they're angry. It says they're indignant. They're angry again. They're outraged. They are passionately against what's going on. And they're targeting Jesus. And they're eager to destroy this good, healthy place that Jesus has created. Again, they're angry for all the wrong reasons. So Jesus' actions here. They preach a profound message to us without even using many words. If you and I are going to be imitators of Jesus Christ in our lives, then we need to be ready 
to turn the assumed expectations of this world, the assumed expectations of this culture, upside down. You and I need to be ready to do some holy disrupting. Some holy disrupting when the reality of this broken world is ungodly and unholy. You and I need a little bit of righteous indignation, maybe a lot of righteous indignation, when the shalom that God intended is being torn apart, when it's being broken in our families, or maybe in the hallways of our schools, in the gossip of our churches, in the racism and sexism of our own hearts and of the community around us, when it's being pulled apart by by the hatred and the lies being spewed all over our country. When it's being pulled apart by whatever we see, whatever we hear, that flies in the face of what God designed. Because the world, the world would love for every single one of us just to conform to that. Conform to the behaviors of this world. This is the way things work. This is the way things are. Toe the line, play the game. That's not who we're called to be as followers of Jesus Christ. We are called to be indignant enough to turn the tables. To turn those broken expectations upside down. To bring love into the courtyard of hate. To bring truth into the courtyard of lies. To bring justice into the courtyard of selfish gain. To bring grace into the courtyard of judgment. To bring healing into the courtyard of brokenness and divisiveness. To turn the tables. So as you reflect through the areas that you're living your life, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in school, on the athletic field, are there any tables turned upside down? Are there any places that you have gone and said enough and you've turned that table over? Or is everything just laid out just the way culture wants you to have? Perhaps we get angry too much and indignant too little. Perhaps you and I need to have a little more righteous indignation in our lives. Because we're pretty good at getting angry when our team loses in the basketball tournament and our bracket gets shot. Get ready for that, right? We're pretty good at getting angry when Facebook goes down for 14 hours last week. We're pretty good at getting angry when there's yet another snow day this year. We're pretty good at getting angry when we don't really like the songs that we sung this morning and the preacher preached a little bit long. But then we aren't moved at all when we drive past poverty on the way to work on Monday morning. We aren't angry at all when we encounter families with children who are homeless on the street living in their cars. We aren't angry at all when we know that racism is real and we choose to ignore it. 
We aren't angry at all when there's people all around the world and around our neighborhoods, maybe living right next door to us, maybe working in the cubicle right next to us, who are deceived into believing that they don't need Jesus Christ. We aren't moved. You know, Jesus, Jesus saw the brokenness of your life and of my life. He saw the injustice for us. And he turned the table. He turned the table by walking to the cross. He turned the table by allowing the Romans to nail him to that cross. He turned a mighty large table when he willingly died for you and for me and then walked out of that tomb alive again. He wasn't, he wasn't content to just let things stay the way they were for you or for me. He turned the table in your life, and I'm glad he did. Now what table is he asking you to turn? Maybe as we learn to better discern the difference between deadly anger, unhealthy anger, and righteous indignation, then perhaps our actions will begin to speak louder than our words as we continue the task that Jesus himself preached through his actions. And perhaps then, through us, through you and through me, God might just turn a table and transform a part of his broken creation. Again, redeeming it for his glory. Let's pray that he'd do that through you and through me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were not satisfied to just let things go the way that they were. You saw the brokenness in our lives. And you said, I'm going to do something about that. You were angry at the way that sin had captured our hearts. You were angry at the way that Satan was abusing us and breaking us. You were angry at the way that death seemed to have the last word. And you turned those tables upside down. You worked for justice and righteousness and goodness. You did what it took to pursue God's plan. Thank you. Thank you that we can receive that transformed reality for ourselves. Now, Father, I pray that you give us a holy dissatisfaction a holy dissatisfaction with the ways of this world. With the injustices that we have gotten used to. With the wrongs that we've just accepted. With the times we towed the line with this world when the world has said, good enough, just let it be. Just play the game. Father, help us to step over that line. And to appropriately create something new by your power and by your grace. To bring change and transformation to a world that's dying to be transformed. To experience shalom and peace and goodness. So Father, I don't know what opportunity you're going to set in front of each one of us today or this week. It might be an opportunity to right a wrong in the school hallway or classroom to right a wrong at work, 
to right a wrong in the neighborhood, to rebuild a relationship, or to start one anew. I don't know what it's going to be. But I pray you give us the courage, Father, to appropriately overturn a table or two so that you might create through us a passionate forness for your Father's purposes. And you might bring shalom into our lives and into our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.